Welcome to Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. I'm your host, Dr. James Aston, D.O., and I'm joined by Dr. Dante Paredes, D.O. Welcome, Dante. What up? We are both osteopathic physicians, family practice trained, and also studying neuromusculoskeletal medicine, a.k.a. osteopathic medicine, at the University of North Texas. We bring this show to you because we want to talk to you about your body, about your health, and how they are interrelated. And we are excited for this first episode. We want to introduce you to osteopathic medicine and what that means, what it is, where we came from, and what we do. So we're going to spend some real good time today talking about what an osteopathic physician is here in the United States. Now, osteopathic physicians, they are doctors of osteopathic medicine. They have the title DO, and most of you have probably been treated by a DO at some point in your life you just didn't know about it because we haven't talked about ourselves. So Dante, what, what would you say is an osteopathic physician? So that's, that's the theme of the episode, right? Mm-hmm. When, trying to answer, so when trying to answer this type of question, I figured the best way to go about it is let's start with the, um, with the organization's line. Let's start with the clear, widespread, agreed-upon definition. So osteopathic physicians, there's two words in that osteopathic. There's another word, physician. It's a type of uh, practicing physician in the United States. We actually have a governing board called the American Osteopathic Association, which, you know, agreed upon certain terms, actually. So there's a, there's a definition for us, a formal one. Uh, they say, DOs are fully licensed physicians who practice in all areas of medicine. They emphasize a whole-person approach to treatment and care. DOs are trained to listen and partner with their patients to help them get healthy and stay well. So that's not necessarily wrong. It's accurate. It's what we are. Yeah, we, we work as physicians. We're able to prescribe medications, order tests. We're able to work as specialists in every uh, physician field in the country. So, yes, we do all of those things for sure. Right, but that's not what the question is at its heart, right? Right. If if we're asking what's an osteopathic physician, everybody understands to some degree the word physician. It's what's this osteopathic thing? What is the difference, I guess, is the big question. And that's contentious, actually, because difference could mean are you better or worse, but that's not necessarily the case. It's a different mode of thinking, a different thought process. So it's very existential, really, for us. To some degree, yeah. It's it defines what we do in our field, especially in the neuromusculoskeletal field. It really is what makes us unique. Right, right. So I figured um, the best thing we could do in the osteopathic context is maybe dive into the hows and whys, perhaps where we came to be. So if we're defined as, you know, doctors who do such and such, and such perhaps one of the things we should call attention to is what makes us unique would be the best word to use. So. One of the big things that we do that is not as unique as I thought it once was is that we do something called manual treatment. Uh, what we do is we, aside from diagnosing pathology and diseases and prescribing medications and ordering images and so on and so forth, is we put our hands on our patient. And that seems to be like the defining characteristic of us. We put our hands on a patient, we feel for things that can be treated, and then we treat them again with our hands. So which we, essentially, we diagnosed by reading our patient's body. We get our hands on the body and the body tells us what's going on. Right. And we find a way to address whatever issue we find. And what I love about that is we're able to get immediate results. Often the patient leaves our office 
feeling better than when they came in. And that is great. That's not something you see every day. Right. And that does sound, especially when we say it that way, it sounds a bit almost hoodoo-ish to say, yeah, we read the patient's body. But there's something worth noting that, no, we mean that at a technical level. In our mm-hmm. training, we spend so much time learning how to palpate um, ourselves, like normal uh, tissue, t- uh, quote-unquote, to get a sense of what relatively healthy folks feel like so that when we feel pathology, it's not just that we can, yeah, match the symptoms to the criteria. We can feel a back and say, hey, that back isn't quite right, or put our hands on someone's skull and say, hey, there's something going on here, and then do something about it, again, right there on that table or in that examining floor. So we can find hips that are out of alignment immediately. We can find uh, musculature that's tightened and spasmed and needs a treatment. Right. And not only diagnose the treatment there, but say, let's do something about it right now. Let's get you some relief right now so we can get you back to doing what you were doing before this all started. Right. And there, there's a degree of functionality to it. Like there's a focus on the performance, the functional, the getting back to your life that I'm not saying that others will not do, but it's an explicit, not tenet, it's an explicit uh, goal of our mode of treating. It's not sufficient to say, hey, let's manage your diabetes. It's, hey, we need to manage your diabetes because we need you to be able to do whatever it is you're about, which is a little extra step. There's an interjection of philosophy there, Mm -hmm. but at the Mm -hmm. same time, the osteopathic thing, uh, it's easy to read it as, oh, they're doctors who also use their hands, but there's something a little bit greater than that. There's actually a very deep philosophy that is not necessarily um, a part of what we are. It's actually interwoven into the fabric of what we are. They're actually inseparable at the finest degree. So what we are and what we do, very closely connected, right. interwoven, almost like a fabric. Yeah. So let's talk about, um, let's really go deep then. If, if that's what we are at the superficial level, let's dive a step deeper. The osteopathic thing didn't come out of nowhere. It was specifically designed or developed, I should say, as an answer to a problem. And, and that's a very valid and important point. Um, I have seen some descriptions of uh, the first osteopath. His name was Dr. Andrew Taylor Still. Some might know him as A.T. Still, as somehow creating the osteopathic approach out of whole cloth. But in reality, he was an innovator in his field, influenced by a number of sources. Right, right. So uh, just to get some of the really basic but fundamental story out of the way, so this fellow, Dr. Still, he was an MD uh, in the context of what an MD was at the time. This was in the um, later aspect of the 19th century, which means the 1800s, because we say 19th, but that means 18, which is confusing. Right, right. Yep. Uh, what ended up happening was he apprenticed under his, phys- his father, who was a physician and Methodist preacher, learned how to do the standard version of medicine at the time, which is something you call heroic medicine. That's the version where, as cool as it sounds, it was very heroic, right, for right, sure. Right. And that, that's actually part of the way the word was used. It was the idea of there's this pathology to fight. There's this thing we must defeat. So in response to fevers and dysentery and so on and so forth, what they would do is they would uh, prescribe these medic- medicines mostly for purgative functions in order to almost purge the sick, uh, which didn't really work that well at the time. There was a lot of distrust in medicine at that time period because oftentimes the medicines were as harsh as sometimes more severe than the cure. Well, if you went to the doctor at this time, the doctor would either bleed you. Right. Because you had a fever, so you must need to get that blood out. 
the doctor would cause blistering or would make you throw up. Right. And I found out what they used for the throwing up aspect. They gave uh, calomel, I believe is what it's called. Yeah, it's a mercury-containing compound that yeah. is really nasty. Right, right. It actually it, it causes you to have essentially chalky, fragile jawbones. Um, in fact, uh, the fellow we're talking about, Dr. Andrew Still, he was a patient once upon a time when he was sick and he was treated with calomel quite often because that's what the move was in the day. He actually rotted his teeth out. I didn't know this until I started doing my research for this episode. The dude wore dentures for most of his adult life because he lost of, all his teeth. A lot of Americans did at that point because they did lose their teeth. And, right. and it's an, an interesting time frame for medicine because we had the heroic medicine, which is what Dr. Still was taught. We had homeopaths who were treating people based on if they had a certain symptom set, they should take a medication that causes that symptom set to get better. And the joke was, you either died of the disease or you died of the homeopath's cure, but one way or the other, <laughs> right, right. you were going downhill. Right. When the uh, reaper comes knocking, man, that sight is... is gone. You're gonzo. Um, and then there were the, there were the hydropaths who believed that taking a bath had restorative effects, which kind of makes sense because no one took baths, at least among the American settlers at that time. Right. When the world is dirty, hygiene is actually curative. Which, and, and they took their cues from the Native American population, which had better hygiene than the American settlers. Right. And then there was a few outliers who were, were doing dietary stuff, like uh, Sylvester Graham of the Graham Cracker fame, just teaching people that maybe what you eat is indicative of what your health is going to be. But for some reason at that time, it didn't gain nearly as much traction as we have nowadays. Right. So we had all of this medical craziness going on. We even have a term for a lot of these medical treatments. Um, when you hear the term quack, yeah, it's based on the Dutch term for quicksilver, which was a mercury-containing compound. Anyone who gave mercury as a treatment was a quack. Right. And there's an interesting wordplay in there because, and this is where it gets kind of fun to play with the ideas. So. This guy, Dr. Still, who develops this method he calls osteopathy, was called a quack for not prescribing the medicines of the time, which were quicksilver. So the word ends up losing its meaning in the context because, right. like you said, the, the word quack in and of itself implied the treatment via silver, which was looked down upon explicitly in the context where the word was developed. However, to not prescribe mercury um, and the other purgatives and so on and so forth in the American context was the thing that made you labeled as a quack which kind of speaks to the strange, we'll call it the strange schizophrenia of the American medical system at the time. Almost a juxtaposition. Yeah. So what happens is, um, and it's, it's really a sad story. Maybe we'll dive into it today, maybe at some other time. But what ends up happening is, so Dr. Still realizes that the medical maneuvers that he had available to him were insufficient. And the way he found that out was, unfortunately, through the death of loved ones. He lost I think three of his children. Yeah, three of his children. I think it was 1864. Yeah, spinal meningitis. Which and we had no good treatment for. Right. And he goes, um, for all the training he has, I, I'm a physician, I've saved lives. He was an army physician, specifically an army surgeon, and he's done a lot of good work. But at the end of the day, his training, as valid and powerful as it was at the time, wasn't good enough to save his kids. And when that happens, you start to question things. He saw the extreme limitations of the medical practice at the time. Right. He couldn't save his family, and that would make him think about his career in a very powerful way. Right. Of what we were doing to our patients at the time. 
There was an interesting juxtaposition, as, as we're talking about, the, of the respect that doctors had in society and yet the lack of respect. For example, miners during the gold rush days in, in California would respect doctors enough to give them their valuables to take back to town because they knew when someone got waylaid by bandits, if they were a doctor, they were let set free because the doctor was treating everyone. Right. But at the same time, no one trusted the doctors to treat them because everyone was getting sick and dying regardless of what doctors were doing. Right, right. And that was actually one of the big things. It was, there wasn't malice or avarice, or sorry, not power. There wasn't malice or anger towards the physicians of the time. It was almost like a pity because they were trying to do such noble things as, you know, heal the sick. But their methods, their maneuvers just weren't sufficient. And that brings us to this uh, scenario where Dr. Still goes, uh, there must be a better way. And he actually, it didn't like necessarily come as a bolt of lightning. The dude fell into like severe, severe, profound depression. He refused to practice for, I have to double check my facts on this, but somewhere around close to seven years. He just was not practicing in the traditional manner. Which um, makes a lot of sense. Right, he if lost he faith the in the system. the of, of the treatments you had available, you wouldn't want to use them anymore. Right, what brought him back was actually a close friend of his. So during the war times, uh, he developed very close connections with this fellow named Mr. or Colonel Abbott, Abbott I believe was the name, and Abbott was same thing. He was very cynical of the medical system at the time. He was dreaming that one day, should ever they be so lucky, they'll find a way to actually bring about health. Basically, he said in a pillless version of medicine, a drugless medicine. And in Still's despair and him losing his way and so on and so forth, it all kind of congealed together. And eventually he realized, the, the way he came about it was actually really profound. He was thinking about the death of his children and so many others, and he was trying to figure out if God is good, right? Because um, he, was, he was a devout Methodist. That's a big deal right. in this. He was a very religious man. He had a strong faith. Right. His idea was something right. like, if God is good and this suffering happens, there must be something wrong. What is this world where the God creates a life in order to take it away so young just like this? If such a God was what this is, then this is no God of mine. This is a murderer. So he basically had a crisis of faith. Right, right. Related to all of the things that he experienced. And he saw people were not getting healed like he had wanted them to. And at the time, cholera was rampant. Smallpox was still an issue because the cowpox vaccine wasn't re readily available yet. Right, we didn't have a mature germ theory yet. We didn't even know what was causing most of these things. And we were, we were doing things like treating fevers with chicken guts and making right. someone lay out and put fresh chicken guts on their belly to draw the fever out. And when they had chills, make them go outdoors and make them shiver. Um, all of these weird treatments. Strange things, right. No effect. And it was against this backdrop that the skill set evolved. So something worth noting was that Dr. Still spent his formative years actually in the frontier. And that's a big deal because this man wasn't um, pent up in urban world in academia, he was out hunting, um, trapping, fighting the Native Americans because he was juxtaposed close to the Shawnee for his survival. So he saw a lot of, for what it amounts to, a lot of dead bodies, a lot of fresh dead bodies. Both in the Civil War and in the Indian Wars, for sure. Right. And he actually, from speaking from a physician's mindset, he tried to learn as much as he could from what data was available to him. And if he's hunting for game and fighting such that there's people dying left and right and needs to find a better way, he actually would study what was available to him. And when you take that as your foundation, you take the despair of the medical system and you take this general dream that the entire country was dreaming for of a pillless medicine, 
it all kind of came together one day. I think it was June 22nd of some year that I forgot where he goes, I think I got it. And then he didn't call it medicine yet. He didn't call it osteopathy. He just goes, I think I found a better way. And then he started practicing again, but he wasn't practicing in the traditional sense. He would call it experimenting. So he'd be like, hey, I heard you have this uncurable thing. We got nothing better to do. You want to come by? Let's try to take care of this. And he would develop the skill set, and lo and behold, he would get people better. One of the really cool specific events was um, he was talking about how during the war times there was this fellow who fell off his horse. Right. And right. they thought he was dead. They, like, they thought he was going to die because he broke his neck because he was in so much pain. So Dr. Still, having looked at so many spines and necks and things that are broken and not broken before with this idea goes, but what if I could just move this back? So he drove two stakes into the ground, told the guy to lie down here, basically rammed his shoulders into a place where they wouldn't move, did some sort of weird maneuver, which nowadays we'll call HVLA, um, high velocity, low amplitude, which is a version of a thrust, essentially. And he just kind of put the guy's neck bones back where they belonged. And the guy... And voila. Yeah. And he's like, this is a thing. Yeah. Well, and he was influenced pretty strongly by the Shawnee approach for medicine too, right? Right. The, the Shawnee and, and many of the Native American medical approaches involved restoring balance. They felt that health represented balance with nature. Right. And illness was a lack of balance or some imbalance. So they, when their treatments, tried to restore balance, whether that be with herbs or religious practices or uh, sweat lodges and other techniques. They had this idea that a body out of alignment with nature was a body that was sick. Right, and that's actually what um, he pursued wholeheartedly. So when he was, talk when he was having his crisis with um, his God, he was thinking something along the lines of, okay, if God is such as this, then God's a murderer, but God is not a murderer, God is good. Therefore, there must be something that we, you know, fallible man are doing wrong. So he got this notion that perhaps the thing we are quote-unquote worshiping is the guessing God rather than the true God because we guess the dose of our purgatives. We guess that maybe this one will be saved, guess that maybe this one will not. But maybe there's a truer way, true in the technical sense, because remember, true in the modern time means accurate. True right, in a technical right. sense is the opposite of sin. True means to hit your mark, and it's a notion of accuracy. Uh, so he was thinking maybe there's a truer way to do his medicine. Um, and he just kind of went with that idea. It was this notion that maybe the body has all it needs to heal because God made everything perfect. And because we're one of God's creations, perhaps we are perfect. Maybe all the things we need are in us, which is his elaboration of nature. So he figured if perhaps I can just move myself just so, or uh, move this, move that, let the body do its thing, then perhaps that would be the way to health. And that was his underlying thesis. Here's a cool fact. So A.T. Still, when he was developing the concepts of osteopathy, was actually adamant about the power of nature overall, not just movement. In fact, he genuinely believed that the sun had powerful healing properties. He called it heliotherapy. That was not his concept. That was actually something that was pervasive across many cultures. However, he was trying to harness it in the context of American medicine. What does that mean? That means that what he did was take a bunch of glass make a bunch of lenses and try to set it up in such a way that the lenses would focus the light from the sun into a beam so that he could use that beam of sunlight in order to heal patients. What he had in mind specifically was cataracts because a cataract is a fogging of the lens of the eye. He was hoping that with sunlight he can burn away these lesions. 
Once upon a time, some guy in the middle of the American frontier in the 19th century tried to build a laser. The only reason it didn't work was because the Civil War. So Dr. Still was a true medical innovator in the 1900s, no less. And in his experience, he saw a better way to practice medicine and to take care of patients. And we still use that to this day. So what is that better way? So the really interesting thing to articulate about the osteopathic thing is that it gets really easy to assume that what makes the osteopathic physician unique is the, the manual therapy, the skill set, like the fact that we can, you know, uh, move joints, treat fascia, so on and so forth, right, um, right. crack backs and whatever. Yeah. But yeah. that really is a tiny, tiny facet of what the thing we do is. The, the better really... way that he envisioned wasn't necessarily about, you know, he wasn't the massage therapist, he wasn't no, the no. chiropractor, those weren't things at the time, but you get the idea, he, that right, wasn't the right, mission. Right, that was not his end goal. Right, the end goal was to actually be able to heal the body. And that's a big deal because the way you, when you set your goal, everything you do will follow according to that goal. So if your goal is to treat disease, your modus, your level of analysis, the thing you set yourself up for is to treat the disease, which is not necessarily the same thing as uh, finding health. That's oh, and that's a quote yeah, 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 directly right. from Dr. Still. He said that anyone can find disease, but not everyone can find health, paraphrasing right, right. what he said. So the better way for him began, began with a paradigm shift he kind of inverted the table and said, fine, um, this thing we're doing isn't working. Let's change filters. Let's start from the beginning. What's our mission? What's our job? And he goes, it's to find health. I don't care if the guy has, you know, has cholera, diphtheria, pneumonia, whatever. That's secondary. That's the thing taking away his health. My goal is to find his way back. Do I want to kill the pneumonia? Technically, I do. Sure, you but it's not get rid because, of it. Right, but it's not because the pneumonia is intrinsically the problem. It's because that's getting in the way of this guy's health. And the body, by its nature, wants to be healthy. That's how it was designed. That's how nature runs. Uh, Dr. Still saw in nature this over dry, overall drive to be balanced. Right. And so now he's looking at this thing, how can we restore that healthy balance to our own natural systems? Precisely. So what ends up happening is he goes, if the problem is health and the body heals itself, which is a presupposition he, you know, he believed in. Right. Um, the question would become, how do I do that? What's my means of getting people back to health? The solution he came up with, the solution he believed in, was by trusting the anatomy. He had this idea, remember, this world, this frontier world that he grew up, that he lived in, was a very mechanical world. It was a time of steam, a time of engines. Electricity was a thing, but nobody quite understood how it worked. Not yet. He had this notion of, Perhaps the aberrant health is not necessarily because of the pathology per se, but it's because of the aberrant function. Yes, the pathology is causing the aberrant function to some degree. And there's a relationship there. Right, right. It's not the overall theme of health. Right. It's just a bump in the road to normal functioning. Exactly. So instead of saying, hey, you have back pain, your disease is back pain, I'm going to give you X solution, the question, the thing he would do is go back several steps and go, why do you have back pain? Okay, why do you have that? Why do you have that? Ah, perhaps what that is what you're doing when the back pain started. And why is it not getting better with laudanum? Right, right. He's essentially an OG for root cause analysis is yeah, kind of yeah. what the modus is. So what ends up happening is 
he tries to find a way to apply that to a medical practice. Because philosophically, I get it, fine. Do your root cause analysis, figure out what the source is, fix the source, fine. But what's different about him that makes it not medicine for him? Remember, medicine was not a thing they trusted. And medicine means something very specific. That means pills in this context. It's a broader word now, but back in the time, to say medicine meant the materia medica, which meant the pills, the you know, the mercury, medicines. and so on and so yeah. forth. Laudanum and right. uh, maybe a little bit of uh, other medications out there, or herbs, whatever right. they may be. So he goes, let's find a way to get people well without medicine. And without medicine, he goes, okay, fine. If it's a problem with structure and function, what if I just intervene on the structure? Maybe that will restore good function. If they're truly interrelated and causality is a thing, if I fix the structure, I fix the function. Ta-da, I found health. So, so he thought that there was a relationship between the structures he was working with and their normal functioning. Right. And if they weren't functioning normal, normally, maybe there was something amiss in the anatomy right. that if it were adjusted appropriately, it could be restored to its normal functioning. Kind of like a light switch that's not working because of a loose wire. You right. Undo everything, tighten the wire back up, flip the light switch on, and voila, you've got light. Right. And that, that, that analogy to electricity and light switch is quite good because the thing he was targeting was essentially the nervous system as far as he understood it. He goes, um, and he, he writes extensively actually about how it's the spine that has the control over the body to some degree because what? The nerves from the spine innervate the various tissues. And right. if, let's say, let's make it like this. If, let's say you have a vertebrae out of a place such that it's putting pressure on a spinal nerve, let's say around, I don't know, T8 or T9. That's yeah. thoracic vertebrae 8 or thoracic vertebrae 9. Basically right, the lower right. part of your mid-back right at the base of your rib cage. If that area is all tied up, then the nerve that's in that area is going to be choked up such that it can't do its job appropriately. Nerves communicate signals. Uh, in a technical sense, they communicate electricity and chemical signals to make a system do a thing. So the... The nerve signal is essentially altered. Right, right. Either slowed or changed in such a way that whatever end organ is innervated by it, is connected to it, isn't getting the right signal and may not be working right. Right. So he would what? He would try to release that dysfunction. Um, originally, it was with his knees a lot of the time. Actually, he would basically just massage people in the back with his knees at those levels until that dysfunction was relieved. And then what would happen from there is he would see if they got better with their specific thing. So fine. Let's say. I don't know, T9, uh, T10 or something like that, there'd be on the 9 to 10 thoracic vertebrae some sort of aberration. He'd release or work out or stretch out or massage out that dysfunction, however method he had, and then he would reassess to see if he got better. Those two vertebrae levels correlate vaguely to stuff in the GI system. So if somebody had, I don't know, gastric yeah. reflux or something, yeah. he would try to treat the reflux not necessarily with the medications, which would have been purgatives, he would try to get it to uh, get better by massaging the appropriate levels to release out those issues that made it not functional in the first place. So he was essentially trying to normalize the nervous system's transmission of messages to the organs, whether, right. whether in this case be the intestines so that you have appropriate gut motility, uh, working on either constipation or ulcers like you had mentioned. Uh, any number of issues that can be caused or influenced at least by the nervous system. So once we, or once he normalized the nervous system, then all of a sudden people started getting better. Right.
miraculously in many ways. They actually thought it was miracles at the time. That's why he was called the lightning bone setter, right? To some degree. Um, <laughs> that, was actually a, that was actually a title that was thrown on him like so much that eventually it's somebody he gave him and just said, fine, I'll take it. Just call me that. <laughs> call me anything. But Well, that, every but superhero fine, needs a name, so. Yeah. And he does kind of have a weird origin story type of deal, as tragic as it is. But yeah, what ended up happening was he would, he would try this methodology. Because it's one thing to have a theory. It's another thing for it to work. Right. So he goes, okay, fine. Perhaps the anatomy is going to be the key. Perhaps if I can correct structure, then I'll get better function. So he starts testing this on these patients. Experimenting is the word he used on these patients to see if they get better. And they did. They got better enough that they actually keep coming to tell other people to come to him. So there's a difference between, hey, I feel better, come back two weeks. It was, hey, my asthma, which I didn't even tell you about, is gone. Mm -hmm. What the heck did you do to me? So they would send their friends and they would send other people they love and so on and so forth. And people would travel yeah, far people and wide coming to see the lightning bone the country center. To come and see him, right? right. And some pretty well-known Americans even came and saw him. Mark Twain was like his, his biggest fanboy, which is really cool. Yeah, because Mark Twain didn't have a whole lot of uh, good things to say about a lot of people. So Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, Mark Twain legit loved the dude. Like he wrote profusely about his love of osteopathy because it was called osteopathy once upon a time. Um, because of all the good it's done the American people. And that's really cool. That being said, when you have this guy who's out in the middle of the frontier healing the people who people once thought were incurable, good for the patients, it sets off this weird image of why are these people pilgriming to the middle of nowhere? <laughs> why are they coming back better? This is kind of weird. Yeah. It caused a lot of noise. Yeah. It caused a lot of contention, actually, because this guy was an MD who was no longer prescribing drugs. Right. He was doing this other thing which has never been done before, it came into question of whether what he was doing was technically medicine or people actually thought he was um, kind of doing devil work. Well, he was competing unfairly because he was actually getting positive results where people hadn't been getting positive results in the past. Right, devil work. Yeah, um, he, was a, he was a medical heretic of sorts, I right. guess you could say. I mean, there, there's, a con there's a preface to it, so bear in mind, um, it's hard to discuss the origins of the osteopathic thing separate from the faith system that the whole thing is enmeshed in. So in the Methodist church, or really in the Christian church, but in the Methodist church particularly, there's this idea of laying of hands. Mm -hmm. The laying of hands is a sacred event. It's the thing that a priest does to heal somebody. Right. And um, A.T. Still and his family were actually exiled from the church for reasons we could dive into some other time. Um, so they exiled this guy from the church for being some version of sacrilegious and fast forward into his adulthood he comes back to the mainstream eye doing things like laying hands and people getting better the first thing they thought was hey didn't we send this guy off to die what happened here <laughs> why does he have superpowers now not only God, that must they, be demons he was sent off to the shawnee nation so right they actually sent him off to die technically and rather than die he kind of got real good real fast at what he was doing for right. sure yeah so they actually they, they drove this dude out of towns repeatedly they banned him from universities repeatedly and it's kind of a tragic thing because the dude just wanted to help people right and keep in mind doing good right while academia is chasing him out patients are still looking for him <laughs> so he's like yep god ran out of macon county looks like i'm going to i don't know utah or something fine the patients would go to utah right. they'd find him and they he would treat people in the middle of the night right because he they were uh, he was afraid of uh, being found out in some cases he was right he, he was, was a wanted running. man he was he was wanted so he was treating people at night right and it's, it's it's such an amazing drama because there's this guy so dedicated to his craft that he's 
riding by like candlelight across whatever to find these patients in the middle of the dark to fix them. So and I, the only I, reason he's doing this is because if he does it by daylight, he gets hung. I'm like, that's pretty. I think we need to go to like HBO or Showtime and come up with a uh, television show for this because that would be amazing. I could hear the music now. <laughs> um, but that's kind of the premise. So what, I was, what I'm getting at is the thing he did seemed potent enough that the people were coming towards him. And that can do a couple things. Obviously, the patient seems to love him, but the question is, maybe he's a charlatan. Because that's a very valid question. If some guy's completely disruptive to your system, it's a, it's a good time to go, hey, this guy is either a quack or the real thing. And short of any other reasons, it's safer to assume the guy's crazy and a quack. Well, and there were plenty of snake oil salesmen out there at exactly. that time. They were selling all sorts of solutions and potions and medical devices to solve every problem and claimed all sorts of miraculous cures that didn't do squat. Right. But you can buy it for six bucks. Right. And have it sent to your house. So it would make sense. Yeah, hydropathy, uh, metal bells, all sorts of crazy stuff. So it, it, it made sense that although he was becoming popular, there was, there was questions about what he was doing. Right. Popular does not equal good Effective, by any means. Right, right. Especially if, God forbid, he was actually, you know, hustling people. You, from the outside in, you wouldn't know. But the test of time was a thing. And the patients keep getting better. And those who people thought were uncurable kept getting better. And these were not low-level pathologies. It's not like, hey, I threw my back out, can you fix me? These are folks coming in with various like ocular phenomena, asthma, uh, vision problems, um, mostly yeah, infectious diseases, to be honest. Because yeah. back then, remember, this was a time before antibiotics. Right. If you had um, and really pneumonia, the time before vaccines for the most part. Exactly. And he figured out that if you move the ribs in just such a way, if you pump the diaphragm, if you get them to expectorate in such a way, you can actually mobilize the lungs such that they can kind of clear their infection. That's not a big deal now. Like, we do that. That's called chest PT now in an ICU. Right. But back then in 1870, whenever, that was called magic. And it's weird because that's an obvious thing for us now. Like, it's in the order set in a hospital. Order chest PT for the patient with pneumonia in the ICU. It's a thing. But back then, it's, what is this weird like, thing this, is, this guy's this doing? This is amazing. Right, this right. Is voodoo. It's like the first guy to discover CPR or something. Right. So, obviously, it caused contention. But the test of time showed that it was valid. And... Um, essentially, his close friends were talking to him like, hey, man, you figured out a really beautiful thing. You're going to die eventually. Please teach this to some people. We don't want the knowledge to die with you. Right. Like, good for you. Open a school. Not good for us. Let's get this stuff together. Right. So we are part of that legacy, essentially. He opened up a school. He taught some folks. There's a bunch of political battles that we're going to go into one day for fun. It's going to be a fun episode when we finally do that. Right. We are students of that legacy. We are he is our ancestor, of, our, exactly. our founding father, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ancestor might not be the right word. Founding father I like a lot. He's our, he's our founder. Actually, June 22nd, there's a hol- I didn't know this until I did the research for this show. There's actually a holiday for osteopaths. Really? Yeah, June 22nd. Didn't know. It's a thing. It's called Founder's Day. Huh. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to remember that. We're going to have to celebrate. Exactly. We're going to have to have a special episode. Right, right. Because that's actually the... So June 22nd has special significance. That's the day he wrote in his diary that the knowledge of this osteopathic thing came down to him. Like revelatory-wise, that's when he put it together and said, I think I got it. June 22nd. Well, we're going to have to celebrate. Yeah. Maybe Mm. if we make it that far. Yeah, let's see what we can do. So fast forward 150 years... And now we have osteopathic physicians all throughout this country. 15% of, of the physician 
workforce are osteopaths, and yet why doesn't America know what we do? So part of that issue is um, political. Part of that issue is just by nature of what we do. So in the American system, we're kind of a strange creature. Most folks understand MD. Right. Like that's what you think of when you hear doctor, MD, medical doctor. Most folks understand, understand the word chiropractic. That's that right. spine manipulating guy. Yeah, they understand we're, massage therapist or physical therapist. Right, right. We're in this really therapist. weird intersection of all those fields because I'm not saying we did it first, therefore we did it better. It's in the American tradition, we're the first of those things. So it's a bit of a contentious history, but there's people who genuinely believe that the chiropractic lineage stems from this school. Debatable, sincerely debatable. Right. The evidence right. is funky, but it's a point of contention because we know that this came first. Um, but if everybody knows MD and Cairo, it's kind of a complicated thing to convey what we do. Because first of all, there's not that many of us compared to our MD counterparts. Right. At the same time, if the chiropractic schools are very clear and open about what they do and they're univariate, they're easy to understand, it's hard to convey, hey, yeah, we're doctors, by the way, we do the chiropractic thing. It's not the chiropractic thing, it's our thing. Right. But how do you say that? So that's really yeah, hard. Because it's actually hard. That's why we have the show. Yeah, it, you know, we've already mentioned that we can prescribe medications and do everything that any regular physician can do, but we have this extra skill set right. that we can use for our patients that don't, does not get used enough, I think, in this country. Right, and I'll, I'll even harp on that word use. It's not that, that it's extra even, it's integral to the thing. Because and even if we don't yeah, treat with sure. it, our hands, by virtue of how we're trained, can sense. Our physical exam skills, by virtue of what we're trained to do, is just particularly honed. That's very, Once well, upon very time, well heightened. Right. A lot of our uh, counterparts, it was a point of contention of whether the sacroiliac joint, which is the connection of your spine to your hip, it was a point of contention whether or not that moved. And then we're all, we're all here like, of course it moves, man. It moves like two to four degrees if you're a chick. It moves one to two degrees if you're a dude. Feel it. And they're you like, nah. No. And we're like, yeah. And then finally with you know studies and radiology and imaging, they go, oh, yeah, it does move. Yeah, you're right. Fair enough. And I'm like, we've been telling you that since 1870, <laughs> whatever. Right. Well, and we've been doing a number of innovative things since the 1870s. Like we, we now hear the term patient-centered medical home, where you integrate the care of your patient with a bunch of different people. Well, we've been doing that ever since Dr. Still started out. Right. The people moved to his house. He built a separate cottage so people could move into his house so he could treat them daily until they got better. Because as cool as the um, osteopathic treatment thing is with the manual treatment, it does take time. It so, does. whereas the pill, you'll find out if you die right there. The treatment thing, look, connective tissue, the body moves and heals slowly. Um, he would be upfront about this, like, hey, this looks like a, a one-shot deal. Your hip is out of place, it's dislocated, I'll put it back in. But if he's dealing with rheumatic, like rheumatic, uh, sorry, with arthritis, he'll tell straight up, hey, you're going to be here for about six months, but you've been dealing with this for 40 years. Give me six months of your life and I'll get you good. And they'd right. say, yes, sir. Then he'd give him six months and they walk out good. So, yeah, patient-centered medical home. Move right. in with your doctor. I don't think the insurance companies would like that. No, I don't, I don't think so. But that whole idea of seeing a patient not just in the perspective of a disease, like this patient has diabetes, so they are a diabetic, but seeing them within the environment in which they live, so their diet is poor, 
they don't have much money, so they can't afford healthy food, and so that's going to affect what kind of diet that they can eat, and then that's going to affect their blood sugars. That's been something that we have focused on for uh, over a century. Right. And it seems innovative now. And it's a good thing that it's common now. It's it's common now, but it was really an innovation that we really put forward for the last several decades at least. Right, right. It's a central tenet to what we are, to what we think in. So if the question is why do people not understand what we are, part of it is because we're kind of a complicated entity. Like, I don't know if you play Dungeons and Dragons. There's this idea of dual class. So you can have like a warrior guy. Right, and right. You can have like a magic guy. Right. You can also do this thing where you take on two classes and you're kind of like doing both roles. And it makes for really cool, powerful interactions. But it's kind of a confusing thing for the guy who's in control of the story to coordinate. Right. Like, wait, are you a warrior guy today or a magic guy today? I'm all of them all the time, sir. And you're like, that doesn't help me. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it's kind like of like hybrids to, are hard to, to process by do. virtue of being a hybrid. But I, I hope that through this show that we do, that you will be able to understand a little bit more clearly what we are and what we have to offer. Right. Because there is so much we can do for you, both in the traditional and the osteopathic sense. Right. So what I do with my patients, because at the end of the day, the show is very fun, but we do have a day job. Yes, we do have to go back to that. Yeah. So a lot of my patients come to me by referral, so they already kind of know the spiel because they were told by whoever sent them to me what to expect, what's going on. But, you know, I do have a family practice context, and every now and again I get a patient who just found out about us somehow and shows up in the door, and they don't know what we're about. And it's something like, or at least for me, um, I explain it something like sometimes problems get complicated. Sometimes you have a very easy one-step problem. Hey, sinusitis, antibiotics, go home. But problems aren't always that straightforward. And sometimes your problem is a medical problem, in which case you need a medical solution. Sometimes you have an engineering problem and you need an engineering solution. A.T. Still, when he was conceptualizing what we are, didn't call us osteopathic physicians, he called us osteopaths. And the idea was we are not doctors per se, I mean, the words have evolved, but going back in time, we weren't physicians, per se. We were those with a mastery of the machine that is the body. He called us machinists. In fact, in his writing, um, when he like would write in his um, newspaper ads what we do, he wouldn't use the word physician at all. He would describe himself as the machinist of the body or something of the sort. And people didn't quite understand that. They would think it's cool. And like, what is this guy, politics stuff? And they find out, oh, he's a healer. Why don't you call yourself doctor, sir? Because I'm not a doctor. I'm a machinist. This is prior to the word osteopathy. He didn't know. He was actually told to make the word because somebody needed a word other than machinist. He was like, call me machinist, call me an engineer, call me a mechanic, don't call me physician. And they're like, that doesn't help us, man. We got to call you something. We got to have something more concrete than that. Right. So he actually settled on the word osteopath because he didn't want to call us that. He actually just needed a word to say. And one of his Buddies was kind of like, you work on bones, you work on suffering, put it together, you're a bone suffering doctor. And he goes, that's too narrow. That doesn't apply everything we do. But he goes, but it's better than nothing, so it's stuck. So we're an engineer, we're healers, we're machinists. And most importantly, we see people within their environment and help to restore the balance of their nature. Right, right. And that's... It's an interesting to note because the engineer brain is meaningfully different from the, uh, from the physician's brain. I trained a lot as a physician, and I'm not going to pretend to be an engineer, but I'm the son of one. My sister's one. I hang with a lot of them. Technically, I was going to be one of those before I lost the bed and became a physician. Whole other story. Sure. But 
the brain of an engineer, or rather the brain of that behavior set, is very different from the brain of, an, for, of a physician brain set. So in medical school, how are we trained? It's a fire hose of data, right? They right. flood you with everything possible. Everything they can possibly come up with, they get just empty out on you. Right, and you drink in as much as you can, hoping that it can stick and digest. And once it's yours, it's yours. It's a lot of, at a technical level, road memorization, matching the complicated story of your patient to a series of charts and systems and algorithms that you've internalized such that you go beep, beep, boop, boop, got it. I got diabetes there, there we too. Go. Got it. And then the other version is this engineering brain where there's really not that many concepts to memorize. Sure, you have your formulas. Sure, you have your road root, um, your root uh, mechanics. But the moment you have your principles, you have the solution to everything, which is intrinsic to the language that this stuff was originally written in. Like uh, nowadays, we have a lot of techniques. There's right. a, I'm just going to run through a bunch of them for the, for the fun of it. We have a thing called muscle energy, a thing called counter strain, a thing called BLT, which sometimes is LAS, isn't always and LAS. And that's not a sandwich. Right. It's, it's a balanced ligamentous tension and then ligamentous articular strain for the LAS. Right. Yeah. There's a school of thought called FDM. There's a thing called visceral. There's a whole thing called craniosacral therapy, which is a whole can of worms we're probably going to have to dedicate a chapter to because that's a whole point of contention. And um, even, a, even a, a new visceral somatic reflex arc that's coming out as well. Right, right. And there's some folks we're training under who are blending what we do with other cultures, like learning the Chinese aspect plus the American aspect, and they're making up acupuncture, this. Acupuncture, exactly. and those kinds of things. But that's a lot of terms to memorize, but really at the end of the day, all we have is a fulcrum and leverage. And everything else is just different like styles of Kung Fu. Like, your Kung Fu is better than my Kung Fu. Man, I'm still punching you in the face. Well, and, and we'll finish up with uh, my favorite quote from Dr. Still. What we do is find it, fix it, and leave it alone. And thank you for listening to Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Thank you, Dr. Dante. And it's a wonderful conversation today. We're excited for moving on in the future. Next episode, episode two, will be about your back. So come back in two weeks and hear about all that we can do for your back. I am your host, Dr. James, and have a good day. Thank you for listening to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Rollin' Bones Pod, or shoot us an email at rollinbonespod at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N Bones, P-O-D. Rollin' Bones is brought to you by the University of North Texas and Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Executive producer Brenda Jaskulski, producer Rob Upchurch, and medical advisor Dr. Saj Survey contributed to this podcast. Medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast presents the Roland Bones Doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic manipulative treatment and will be as evidence-based as possible. Comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors are welcome. No money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Perez, Saj Survey, podcast producers, the University of North Texas, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. While you may give your email address to make comments or requests, we will never share your email address or contact information with any third parties without your explicit permission.